Thank you very much, Kelly. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Romans, and hopefully you have a handout there. I would encourage you, as we start this series, to take good notes. And um, you can write in your Bible, mark things up if you like to do that kind of thing, or if you have a um, little place, a little extra notes, whatever you can do, because we're going to be covering a lot of ground Uh, and I don't want to skip anything. I want to take our time to really work through this book. It's a tremendous book. I've taught this book once before, but it was on Wednesday nights, and it was rather quick. We kind of worked through it and paced through it pretty quickly. Um, And so a while ago, I wanted to do something that would help us on Sunday nights really focus on study and focus on equipping you to better study your Bible. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to be working through a book of the Bible here methodically, very carefully. This will be a little different than a typical preaching thing. There's not going to be a whole lot of hard um, application at this point. There might be sometimes when I get carried away and I can't help it. Um, but we are going to be looking at this as, a, as students of God's Word. We are called to be students of God's Word. So I encourage you to look at this as, as a learning time, as something we can equip ourselves. And I hope, my goal is that um, as you come to Sunday night services you will grow and you will say, wow, I, I really feel like I'm beginning to understand something. So uh, I hope that's, uh, that's encouragement to get you some thinking along this direction. Um, as we look at New Testament books, we're going to begin with an introduction about what we're talking about with the book of Romans. We'll talk with just general introduction here. When we talk about the, the book of Romans, uh, is in the Old or the New Testament? New Testament. And New Testament books have several different genres. That is, they have several different ways, uh, several different categories of books within the New Testament. Who can think of a, of a category uh, of a book within the New Testament? Gospels, all right? We have that right off the beginning. Anything else? Epistles? History, the book of Acts is history. Prophecy, the book of Revelation. So you have Gospel, Matthew through John. You have History, which is the book of Acts. You have Epistles, Romans through Jude, and prophecy, the book of Revelation. So we have all of these different genres within uh, the Bible, within the New Testament. That's why the New Testament is arranged the way it is. Um, they are not arranged in order of the, the order which they were written. They're arranged like this. Um, now, epistles, the first blank you have there, when I say epistles, we're talking about letters. Epistles are letters, we, we need to get that in our minds. I think sometimes we use the word epistles and we don't think about the fact that we're just talking about, frankly, we're talking about letters. We're talking about letters written from one person to another person. And so letters in the biblical sense usually contain a stated writer and most of the time a stated recipient. So normally in the Bible uh, writing, you have who wrote it and who they wrote it to. Now, now, when we categorize letters, we categorize them into two main categories. There are general letters, general, and there are occasional letters, general and occasional. And I'll explain what that means as we walk through this. General epistles or general letters are written to the church in general. It's an easy way to remember it. They're written to the church in general. Can you think of letters in the New Testament that might have been written to the church in general? Ephesians, the book, well, no, because Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus, right? Romans, written to the church in Rome. How about Hebrews? Okay, James, First and Second Peter. Okay, these are not written 
upon a specific occasion or in a specific pur- for a specific purpose. They're written in general to the church in general. Not, and then uh, the other side, uh, uh, occasional letters are written for a specific occasion. So the book of Philippians is an occasional letter. Do you know why the book of Philippians was written? Uh, most people think it was a thank you letter for the support that Paul received from Philippi. And so he writes this gushing thank you letter to the Philippians about thanking them for their support for his ministry. Um, Romans is, now there, there are different levels of occasion. Like when we say occasional, I'm not saying, like we use the word occasional to mean like every once in a while. But when we say occasional here, we mean it was upon an occasion that the letter was written for a purpose, for a specific occasion. So most of Paul's letters are occasional because they deal with specific issues or upon a specific occasion. Um, Philippians, we just mentioned, is like a thank you letter. Can anyone think of another very specific occasional letter? Philemon. It's a great example. Philemon's a letter written to a specific person carried by a specific slave um, for a purpose. Like it's written to Philemon about Onesimus. And there's, there's a reason. There's a backdrop to the story. And you have to understand the backdrop of the story to really fully appreciate what's happening in the letter. We, we want to know what prompted the letter, the letter writing. Now, somebody said Ephesians earlier. And that, that, to be honest, that's a little bit of a gray area because that is a very broad letter. Um, that isn't necessarily as occasional as something like 1 Corinthians, which is very occasional because that is responding to a letter that was written by the Corinthian church. I preached through 1 Corinthians a long time ago when I first came on as senior pastor, and one thing you'll notice is he'll reference in the letter 1 Corinthians, Paul will say over and over again, as you wrote unto me, and uh, concerning the things which you wrote, now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning this. And it's like he is... He is telling you, okay, remember that time you talked about this? Let's talk about that now. And it's, it's a response. And then 2 Corinthians is, again, a response to another letter. And so we have these uh, occasional letters where books, correct, Ephesians, though it was written to a specific church, um, it is, is, is much more broad and is much more uh, general than it is really occasional. So that, that one's a little bit of a gray area uh, there. So when we talk about Paul's letters... Uh, Paul's letters have two different categories within Paul's letters, and these are very uh, easily to remember. Number one, uh, first we have letters to churches. Letters to churches. Uh, letters like Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Any more? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. They're in they're in order. All of the letters that Paul wrote to churches are at the beginning. So starting through Romans, going all the way through 2 Thessalonians, these are all letters that Paul wrote to churches, okay? They're all organized that way by churches. And then, um, so we see here, when Paul would write a letter to a church, he often did not intend that the audience for the letter would only be that church because these letters were often copied and passed around from church to church. Turn to Colossians 4. Turn to Colossians 4 for a moment. We're going to look around at some passages, or I could just pull up my computer here. And get this going. Um, I don't know if you can. Will this work on the thing? Can you get that to go behind, behind me here? I don't know if it's going to work or not. Is it not? Let's try to mirror it again here. Sorry. Okay. One second here. It was working before... Before we started, here we go. There we go. That should work. 
Okay. So in Colossians 4, he, uh, Paul says, now when this epistle, now what, what's this epistle here? Colossians, right? When this epistle is read among you, this gives us some hints at how they handled um, the, the, the reception of Paul's letters. There, Paul's letter would be sent and it would be read aloud to the church. As this, after this epistle, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that likewise, you read the epistle from Laodicea. So there was a sister letter, a companion letter, which some people actually believe to be the letter of Ephesians, and we can get into that later, um, that, that accompanied the Colossian letter, and they both went out. One went to Colossae, one went to Laodicea. And these churches were to read their letters publicly, and then they were to make copies and swap and read the other letter too. So the letters had a lot of influence, not only in the church in which they were written, but also they were copied and passed around. We also have letters, not only letters to churches. What's the other category? Letters to people, right? Letters to people. Think of what, what, um, what, uh, do you, what can you think of uh, letters to people? We talked about Philemon. We could just start, yeah, right, start after 2 Thessalonians. First and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Okay, these are letters to people. So if you look at like Philemon, um, oops, I said Philippians. If you go to Philemon, um, to Philemon, our, brother, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. This is the um, uh, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved uh, Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Here is a direct letter to people, and as you read through... Um, uh, these letters, you'll find that either they're written to churches or to people, and they would have been read publicly. They also would have been accepted as authoritative as Scripture. We'll cover that more in just a minute. I want to talk a little bit about ancient letter writing and how it's different from today. I already filled these blanks in for you, but number one, ancient letter writing is structured. Uh, modern letter writing tends to be informal. When's the last time you sent an email? Did you even capitalize the letters? I get, letter, I get emails from you guys. Um, and there's misspellings, and some of you don't even work on correcting your autocorrect. I mean, it's awful. I have to, like, sort through it and figure out how... They didn't have autocorrect, okay? They didn't have email. In fact, uh, because I think we have so much ease in communication, that encourages informality. In the ancient world, letter writing was very structured and very formal. There was no government mail system. So to get your letter to someone else, you had to hire a courier, someone you trusted, hand it to them, and then send it off. I also I was doing a lot of reading about this uh, a while ago. It was fascinating. What they would do is everyone would keep copies of the letters they sent. So if Paul sent a letter to Ephesus, he would write Ephesians, and he would also keep a copy for himself and then send one along the way. They would always keep extra copies for themselves for their own files. We find that with all ancient uh, scholars, all ancient uh, famous people, we find their letters. They wrote not only the letters they received, but also the letters they wrote. Also, ancient letter writing often involved the use of, uh, there is a certain term here, which I'm wondering if anyone knows how to pronounce. It's uh, right there in your notes. It's an amanuensis. Amanuensis. Romans chapter 16 in verse 22 gives us an example in amanuensis. An amanuensis is simply someone whose job it was to write down what the writer was saying. We, today we type or we use a dictation uh, to, to do a text message or an email. In this day and age, most of the writers were skilled uh, tradesmen or they, were, they, were qual they, were, they would work 
as an amanuensis, and their job was to sit there at a desk, and you would say, Marshall, the pastor of Harvest Baptist, writing to the saints which are in Rock Hill. Greetings. And, and the amanuensis would write as you would speak. And we actually see this in Romans. The, the amanuensis signs his name. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in Romans 16, at the end of Romans, when we're meeting all these people, Timothy, my fellow worker, greet these people, they greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. I thought, Roman, I thought Romans was written by Paul. It, it was, through the inspiration of the Spirit. But the man with the pen was a man named Tertius. And he even tells us that at the end of Romans. Fascinating. So you'll find that uh, an amanuensis was a very common use, uh, and that is, it helps us a little bit understand sometimes, the gram- sometimes there are some grammar choices that are interesting to us, but that, that's, again, a little bit beside the point. But I want to point that out to you, that there was the use of this amanuensis probably throughout. Most people used amanuensis when they would write letters. Most people who were writing letters would do that. also want to mention um, Paul's apostleship. A couple notes here. Uh, as we're still in the introduction. Paul is, uh, think of him historically. Who is Paul? Where do we first come across Paul? Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. What is he doing? He's killing and persecuting the church. He's the breathing out threats and slaughters against the way, the people of the way. So he is a, a persecutor of the people of God. And then what happens? On the road to Damascus, he has a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and he transforms into a missionary for Christ. He goes from being a hater of the way to a follower of the way. He is persecuted, he's hated, and he turns into a missionary for the Gentiles of the Christian faith. In fact, if you read Paul's letters, a lot of Paul's letters are areas he visited on his journeys, and he's writing back to them to check in on them or to talk to them or speak to them. And so as we put the book of Acts and Paul's letters side by side, we can understand more about what was going on in Paul's life. And because of his stature as an apostle of Christ, his letters carry authority. Very early in the church, these letters were recognized as being scripture. Let's talk about inspiration. I have two passages here. One is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And um, in this passage, it says... Um, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice here, all Scripture, and that includes the New Testament, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Um, From the very beginning, Paul's letters were recognized to be authoritative Scripture on par with the Old Testament. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is breathed out. This word inspiration is the idea of being God-breathed, of coming from God himself. It means breathed out by God and is profitable. One other passage I want to point you to is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. This is a really interesting little passage that cross-references Paul's writings from uh, the Apostle Peter. He says, Considering the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul. Okay, here is Peter writing about Paul. And I want you to notice how he describes Paul's writings. According to the wisdom given to him has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them these things, in which are some things hard to understand. That should be a warning to us. 
that we are dealing with difficult stuff, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do what? Right. Not as they do the Scriptures, but as they do the rest of the Scriptures. So this phrase is written in undeniably including Paul's writings within the context, within the category of scriptures, Paul's writing fits. Paul is writing scripture, and the word scripture, I think I put a note down at the bottom, is always used elsewhere to refer to documents that come from God, the Old Testament. And I listed a bunch of scriptures in the New Testament that reference the scriptures, the Greek term, the scriptures, and it always refers to God's word. So we're dealing with something that is inspired. We're dealing with God's word here. We talk about epistles. So how do we read epistles? Well, the basic unit of thought in a letter or in a book is the paragraph. Is the paragraph. Translators of the Bible have done their best to divide the the sections here into paragraphs or units of thought. They try to pay special attention to transitions, to words, that change, maybe change in location, change in topic, change a repeated phrase that's connected. But I want you to notice a couple things. The trans, the um, the paragraph markings in your Bible. So if you have a modern translation like New King James or ESV or New American Standard NIV, they are often uh, grouped in paragraphs. If if you don't see that, if your Bible has verse by verse, look for bold numbers. Look for bold verse numbers. That will often indicate the front of a paragraph or a paragraph marking that backwards P. And that is a paragraph section. So like in my Bible software here, uh, I can book, turn to the book of Romans. And let me make it a little smaller so you can see. But notice in, in mine here, it, this is New King James. It gives me a paragraph here, uh, and then a paragraph, and then another paragraph here. You see the paragraph breaks? And in most translations, you're going to have paragraph breaks. And these are very helpful because they are given by the translators to help us see where the, uh, the change is. Now, the thing is, not all paragraph breaks uh, are, are equal across all translations. Um, so I did a quick search of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and if somebody here, I'm going to just go on a risk this here, um, does somebody here have a, uh, a, an ESV? An ESV. Okay? Can you tell me what the paragraph breaks are, starting in verse 8, so it's Romans 1, 8 through 18, what paragraphs do you have? Starting in verse 8. Okay, that's good. That through verse 18 is what I'm looking for. So I'm going to add ESV here so you can see it alongside. And what we find is the ESV decided to break after verse 15. I don't know if you can see this. It's kind of small. But they do verses 8 through 15, and then verse 16 through 17, and then verse, well, we're not really covering verse 18. We'll just stop at verse 17. So, so do you see how the paragraphs here, whereas New King James has 1 through 8, 13 through 15, and 16 and 17. Um, NIV, does anybody have NIV? What do you have? Correct. Correct. I start at verse 8 here. I'm sorry. I'm starting at verse 8. Yeah, if you have New King James, you'll have 1 through 7. If you start at verse 8 and go through verse uh, 17, you'll find three paragraphs in the New King James. 
you'll find two in the ESV, you'll find two in the New American Standard, and you'll find four in the NIV. NIV divides it as 8 through 10, 11 through 13, 14 and 15, 16 and 17. So it, it depends on your translation. Sometimes they divide it in, but the general idea is most of the time, they're trying, uh, translators are trying to group ideas together in paragraphs, and when the new paragraph starts, that's normally an indication that something important has shifted, okay? The reason I make a big point of this is that actually it isn't as big a deal for the book of Romans because when you read books uh, in the Bible, you come to a chapter heading, that does not mean that the thought has stopped. Uh, a great example of this is 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 goes through chapter 2, verse 2. The real, the real thought really begins in like verse 5 and continues through 2, 2. It doesn't stop at the end of chapter 1. The nice thing is, is because verses, you have to understand something, verses and chapter numbers were not inspired by God. They were added later by human editors. So when we say Romans chapter 4, we're talking about a mark that was made by a later person to help us find something in the, in the Scripture. So I actually have a Bible. I don't think I have it anymore. I used to have a Bible in my office that had no chapter numbers and no verse numbers. I have one at home that's like that. You, you want to like uh, have nightmares trying to witness to somebody in that Bible. You're like, ah, oh, it's here somewhere <laughs> trying to find it. You know, where are my chapter numbers? But it's meant to, meant to let you just read the Bible as it was perhaps originally presented. So when we come to chapter numbers, that is not authoritative. Verse numbers are not authoritative. Sometimes you're reading your Bible and a verse number is in the middle of a sentence. And, and you know, if you have a verse-by-verse verse Bible, which means that your formatting is every verse is a new line, you might not notice it. But uh, it's important for us to just keep this in mind. The nice thing about Romans, and this is amazing, is that, that Paul, when he wrote Romans, was extremely structured. And actually, our English translations and, and most of the translations that we have, I think all of the versification we have for Romans— is, is very well organized. In fact, it does a pretty good job of nailing all the main divisions of Romans. So it's not really going to be an issue today or this, this year, whenever we, long it takes us to go through this, because we will be basically uh, sticking to these as main headers uh, for the majority of our time. Um, any questions on that? Does that raise any questions? I'll be taking questions throughout. Any, any, does that raise any questions to you in your mind about how verses and paragraphs and, and, and chapter numbers work. Does that make sense? There was a joke that uh, somebody said that the way that the numbers and the chapters were, 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 were identified was there was a guy who was riding in a, on, a, on a horse and buggy down a cobblestone road, and as he was writing his Bible, every time the, the, the buggy hit a, hit, a, hit a pothole, he made another verse marking. And so really sometimes you're reading the verses and it doesn't make any sense why that verse is starting a new verse. Really, it isn't super clear sometimes. Yes, sir? So that is a good question. Not really. Um, the reason they did not use paragraphs, uh, if you look at an original uh, text, there are no spaces between the words. Um, they, they are, it is a one single text block. Um, and it's, it, it would be, the style was very different. The reason I say the main unit of thought is the paragraph is I want to get us away from the idea that the main unit of thought is a verse. Because every verse does not stand independent on its own. The Bible is not a collection of verses that we can pull out and rearrange however we want. We have to understand in context what's happening. Um, so does that kind of, you see what I'm saying? 
So it, when, when it was originally written, you could say it was written in paragraphs in the sense that that's how it naturally falls. The paragraphs are more of a reflection of the natural logic of the text and not imposed by, uh, we're trying not to impose our thinking on the Bible. We're allowing the text to speak for itself. So that's why they look for transition phrases and things like that, yeah. Any, great, great question, great question. Any other questions about this idea of verses and chapters and as you read your Bible, you want to be reading for paragraphs, not just through verses. Verse of the day can be a very deceptive thing. Yes, sir. Do the books do anything like that where they kind of just share the same thoughts, or do the books pretty cut and dry, like how the chapters sometimes or the whole sheet from book to next? Are you talking about from book to book? Yes. So from book to book, there, there, is, there is, each individual book was an individual piece of work. Is that, is that what you're asking? Like, so, so like Galatians and Ephesians, um, in our Bible, you just turn the page. Like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, are those, do those There are years separating those. They're, they're different documents. They're different. I mean, they're, they're in our Bible. They're, they're still the same part of the Bible, but they are different. They have to understand them differently. So, like, for example, 1st and 2nd Peter are very different books. And there are some themes that connect but um, First and Second Corinthians are are there. There's time that passes between First and Second Corinthians, and the guy that he confronts in First Corinthians five confesses and is full of sorrow, and he's dealing with that issue now in Second Corinthians. Um, in First uh, and Second Timothy, there are different issues at stake, uh, different things going on. First and Second Thessalonians, same kind of thing. There is there there are issue, different issues that are being dealt with. So you would not you would draw a hard line after every book and before every book. Uh, but within the book, there is a thought that is basically continuous. Uh, one of the things I want you to be able to do is I would love at the end of this study for you to not understand everything about Romans. I think that's impossible for you to understand every single detail. But I want you to feel like you could say, I know what that book's about. I, I know what that book's about. And I can tell you in like five sentences, I can trace the logic of Romans from start to finish. That would be amazing if, if I could, if, if I could like overhear you talking to a friend, man, have you ever read the book of Romans? Here's what it's about. It's about God's salvation and the need for salvation. And you walk through like that to me is the, is the, if you can understand a book, an entire book, can you explain to me the book of Galatians? Do you know what Galatians is about? Most people say, I wouldn't know where to begin. This is what I really want us to do with Romans. I want you to be able to understand Romans to the point where you can trace that logic and not just know a few verses like everybody wrote Romans 8 28 and 29 all things work together for good to them who love God to them who are the called according to his purpose for me for new he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son great why is that verse there what's it doing what's the context what's it do where's it pointing to what what comes before it? what comes after it why why is that verse so important at that point um, I want you to be able to kind of appreciate, maybe not understand every detail, but appreciate the story of Romans, what's happening. It's very logical, okay? I don't know if that completely answers your question, but we're, every book should be understood on its own. You shouldn't bleed necessarily in one to the other. You can understand something about theology by cross-referencing, like we did with Ephesians and um, Philippians, but you're not going to, they don't really bleed into each other like that. Yes, ma'am. That's a great question. Um, so they, I'm trying to think, and um, that is, a, I'm trying to, to be honest, I, I know that we use punctuation 
in Greek when we look at, like if I looked at Greek, if I were to change this to Greek, which I don't think a lot of you know Greek, but if I were to say, um, let me just go to my Greek New Testament. Okay, that's Greek there. So you can see there's punctuation and there's spaces, right? Um, if I were to pull up the, one of the papyri, the ancient papyri, they would not have punctuation and not have um, spaces, but they knew because they knew, they knew that they knew, it, it, it was intuitive to them. Like they, they knew. Uh, it's hard to describe how they knew, but it's just like we know certain things because of context. We know certain things because we speak the language. It would be very hard for us because we don't speak Greek, uh, but it wasn't hard for them. They knew what it meant. Sure. Yeah, and 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 and, and we're getting to, we're not going to talk about Greek today, but but um, but the verbs and and the way Greek works is actually um, it is a it, it, the order does not really matter. Like in English, uh, order matters for meaning. So if I say um, uh, Marshall gave Tim a hat, okay, we have a, a noun, a verb, and then two other nouns. How do you know who did what? Order. Marshall's the subject. Gave is the verb. Tim is the object. A hat is the, or a hat is the object. Tim is the indirect object. I gave a hat to Tim, but I don't even have to put the word to in there. You understand. Like, I didn't have to explain that to you. You got it. But a non-native, non-native English speaker might, have, might struggle with this if they're not used to order. See, the, see in Greek is case language, which means that they can rearrange the words, but the case is the way the words are formed tell us what function they play. So it's cool because you can then say, I can say something like, a hat Marshall gave to Tim. Now, I can say that and you get the idea but because I emphasized it. But in Greek, you just put the word hat first, and it's putting emphasis on the idea of it was a hat that Marshall gave to Tim, not um, a bat or a ball or something. It was something specific. So uh, we're not really going to get into that much today because that's not really in, um, that would take too much time. But we're talking about um, how to read. I want you to read in English. Can you all do that? And Spanish, if you're native Spanish speakers, that's fine. But uh, we're talking about English today, and I might reference some Greek, but I'm trying not to get into too much of that because I think that you can understand 99.9% of everything you need to understand by just reading English. You don't need massive Greek skills. That Greek does help, but we're not, we're not worried about that today. Um, let's talk a little bit about rhetorical style. I want to, again, give you all the tools so when we dive in, if I reference something, you're not saying, wait, what did you just say? What are you talking about? Uh, when Paul talks in Romans, it's important to understand that he uses dialogue and debate as a major style in Romans, dialogue and debate. In fact, in Romans 2, uh, he says this, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Who's he talking to? You're like, you're talking to me? He's saying, well whoever you are who judge. So he's identified this person, whoever you are who judge, and he pins him to the wall and says, you are inexcusable, the one who's judging, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. He is making up an imaginary opponent, and he's debating with him. Okay? He, he debates, and he argues with this, what's called an in interlocutor. It's a, it's a person who is in debate with him. I think I had another verse here. Um, yeah, Romans 9.19. Let's see what that says. I don't remember that one. 
Yeah, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist or who has resisted his will? Who's you? His imaginary opponent that he's debating with. So he, he will often say, you say to me this, I say to you this. And then it's important because he quotes his opponent sometimes, and you have to be careful. You have to figure out, okay, is, this, is he arguing against this point or is he making this point? And it's usually clear, but you have to pay attention. You can't be, sometimes we're caught off guard. If you just read a verse out of context, you may, you may pull the opposite conclusion of what's meaning to be communicated. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying you need to be aware. And I think most people pick up on this kind of stuff just by their nature. Um, so debate and dialogue is number one. Number two, there is a uh, uh, rhetorical appeals. Um, Paul, you know, swam in the culture of Greek thinking. So he lived in the world of Greek thought. And so although Paul doesn't explain the use of these appeals, we see him using these three appeals throughout his books, and these appeals are made famous by Aristotle. Um, so we're just going to briefly talk about them. The first is ethos or ethos, and this means that he will often appeal to his credibility. He will appeal to his credibility to make a point or to try to get them to do something. So Philippians 4.1, um, let's 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, do what? Stand fast in the Lord, beloved. How does, why does he make, when he makes this, when he makes this command, so stand fast, what does he do before that? He makes an emotional appeal. He says, I love you. You're my beloved. You're my longed-for brethren. You're my joy and my crown. He doesn't say stand fast because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't say stand fast because God has done something. He says stand fast because I love you. So there's, there's an emotional appeal that he makes to people often about his relationship with them. That's about his credibility. Uh, that's not really emotional is the wrong word, but like this credibility he has with them, this relationship he has with them. He's basing it on his relationship to them. Another verse I have is from Romans, Romans 1.8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He is thanking God for them. He has a close relationship with them. The second one is pathos, which is just emotional appeal. Uh, he uses the emotions uh, in, order to, um, in order to make a, make a point. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? His reply, certainly not, by no means. King James, God forbid, it's a very strong, it's the strongest negative you can make. He's making, he's shouting from the rooftops. It's this emotional uh, appeal. So the first one has to do with his credibility with them, the fact that he loves them, the fact that they're connected. And in, in, in Paul's writing, he often uses emotions. In fact, I'm going to turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And uh, notice here about the discussion about circumcision, which was uh, a discussion about whether people had to keep the law in order to go to heaven. And notice Paul's strong language here. Now, kids, uh, this, is, this, could be a little, this is a little graphic here. He says, I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Okay, he is, he is making a very strong, very dramatic, colorful language here to elicit a response from his audience. It helps them understand the seriousness of such a wrong doctrine. He's saying, I wish they would just cut themselves off here rather than talk about this kind of stuff. The last, which is the most um, 
common in the book of Romans is logos, which is reasoning to make a point. Let's look at a couple examples there. I listed them before you. If you look at words like what then, he says things and he says, okay, what then? What then? And he makes his point. Romans 3 9, Romans 4 1, 6 15, 8 31, etc. If then, if this is true, then this follows. That's logic. He also says words like therefore. In fact, the word therefore occurs, I think I listed every time the word therefore occurs in the book of Romans there. Look at how many times the word therefore occurs. And the word therefore is a, because these things are true, this must be true or this must be done. So he makes logical, logical points and he's extremely structured. And I want you to notice also that Paul's reasons and Paul's logic often take time to develop. So you have to look at context. So we have to be careful not to isolate verses on their own or even string a couple verses together because passages pulled from their context can be twisted to mean almost anything. Someone once told me, they said, a text without a context is a pretext. You have to be careful just to pull things out of context. Also, you have to be aware of who's speaking, whether it's Paul or whether it's his, his um, uh, interlocutor, whether it's his debate partner. Okay, any questions on how you read letters and how you understand letters and how we should as we head into looking at Paul's letter to the Romans? Any questions pop into your brain? We have, have a few minutes. We're going to start Romans 1. Get your feet wet. Okay? Not going to get as far as I'd hoped tonight. I, I was telling to Pat earlier, I said, don't worry, I won't go as fast as I did this morning. I, I will, we're going to take our time and work through this so that you completely get this. So we, we'll be visiting, we'll be doing the highlights along the way, making sure we're keeping track of where we are. But I want us to really grasp what we're dealing with. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. You can go back to Romans in your Bible. Romans chapter 1. I left, uh, I'm going to put a little introduction on the back side, by the way, of your paper, is a short outline of the chapter. Uh, he begins with an introduction to the gospel, which is where we'll begin Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Let's stop there. Um, in this opening paragraph, Paul does several things. First, he gives his authority uh, or his authorship. He states the theme of the book, which is the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is really the theme of the book that we're headed into. Oops, I didn't mean to do that. The gospel of God. Here we go. Let's see if I can get it right. Nope. Let's just do this. Um, and he identifies his audience to those who are in Rome, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So like I mentioned many times in the New Testament letters, uh, typically when a author writes to an audience, they announce it at the beginning of the letter. In our letters, we announce it at the end. We put our name at the end. In ancient letter writing, they put their name at the beginning. So that's why it begins with Paul. That's not who the letter is to. That's who the letter is from. So we see his authorship and apostleship here at the beginning. Apostle, 
Here he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's a slave. The word bondservant is slave. Um, uh, Doulos, you may have heard that before. And uh, the first thing Paul tells the Romans about himself is that he is an apostle. He is called to be an apostle. And this is really key. The word apostle there, if you look at your notes, is one who is sent. Apostolos. One who is sent. It's an envoy, a messenger, a delegate. One who was sent. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be a sent one by Jesus Christ himself, a bondservant of Jesus. Remember that conversion experience on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Here he describes himself as that apostle by Jesus Christ. So we see the book's theme, the gospel of God, the gospel, the word gospel here, it will come up over and over again. Um, The word gospel is the word euangelion, and it means good news, the good news of God. Uh, I think that Paul's letter to the Romans is a doctrinal treatise that he's writing to get support from them as he gets ready to go on a missionary journey. It is unlikely that he had met the Romans before. The gospel of God, we see here, here, this is an of statement, the gospel of God, either means or both means that it's a gospel about God or it's a gospel whose source is God. Perhaps it means both. The word of is very flexible. But it says Paul is separated to, um, separated to here, these words here, um, has the idea of being appointed to the gospel message. He was set apart for the gospel, he was set apart unto the gospel. So Paul's mission in life was to present the good news to all the people he could. This was the purpose. The gospel of God is the purpose for his apostleship. He is an apostle separated to the gospel of God, separated unto, appointed to the gospel of God. And what is the description of the gospel? Here we have an apostle separated to the gospel of God, and the which, right here, this word which, describes the gospel of God. How are we describing the gospel? It's described which he promised before or he predicted through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we see here, the first blank here, the gospel predicted. It was promised before. This is not a message that has no precedent. The message has been predicted by the Old Testament, by the Holy Scriptures. And here, the Holy Scriptures always refer to the Old Testament. Now, He's going to talk about the Old Testament a lot. In fact, if you just kind of flip through your Bible, I don't know what translation you have, but in my New King James, as I flip through it, I will see several places where there is indented italicized lettering. So in my Bible, in chapter 3, that you may be justified in your words, that is a reference to the Old Testament. If I flip the page, chapter 3, verse 11 through 18, those are all quotes from the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, a quote from the Old Testament. You keep going, we go into chapter um, 8, verse 36, a quote from the Old Testament. Chapter 9, verse 25 through 29, a quote from the Old Testament. And in verse 33, a quote from the Old Testament. Depending on your translation, it is formatted differently, but these are very helpful in us knowing where we are and knowing what's happening. A quote of the Old Testament used as support for what's happening here. This is a gospel that is steeped in the Jewish scriptures because Jesus is the fulfillment of of the messianic expectation of the entire Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of what has been predicted. Look at verse 3 and 4, then we'll wrap it up. 
concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So the gospel is centered on Jesus. Jesus is the center of the gospel. A gospel without Jesus is not the gospel. Gospel has to be centered on Christ. Notice his description. Number one, he was a descendant from David. A descendant from David according to the flesh. Why is that important? Absolutely. Messiah comes from David's house. David was what? Prophet, priest, or king? He was king. Well, he's also a prophet in some ways. He wrote the Psalms, but he is he's king. His function is king. Jesus is king, Messiah, chosen one, anointed one. He is going to fulfill that role perfectly as a son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. Cry out the men uh, who are blind. They call out for Jesus to have mercy because he's son of David. That is his title. He is a descendant of David, born of the seed of David. That word seed has implications all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman will conquer the serpent. And here the seed of David, and now we have he's also the son of God with power, proven by his resurrection. He is a son, the unique son of God. The only begotten is is not used in the book of Romans, but that's probably in mind here, this idea of the unique son of God, declared to be the son of God here. And notice he is called Jesus concerning his son, Jesus Christ. His proper name is Jesus, which is Jesus, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Yahshua, Joshua, um, or Yehoshua, depending on how you want to, um, which version of Joshua you take. But Jesus is the Greek transliteration of Joshua, so we say Jesus. The word Christ is the word Christos, which is a Greek transliteration or translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, as we say in English. It's usually written as HaMashiach, which means the Messiah. So uh, when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Joshua or Jesus, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah. Messiah, Christ is his title. Jesus is his name. And he is born of David according to the flesh, referencing 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13. If I'm going to turn there for a second, 2 Samuel uh, 7, 12, and 13, and the promise to David. When your days are fulfilled, you rest with your fathers. I will set up your what? See it there? I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Even here early in the book, Paul is establishing the importance of the right view of Jesus, that he is both son of God in his resurrection and son of man from David, This is called the hypostatic union. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night where there is Christ, fully God, fully man, and Christ's humanity will come up in Romans 5 as we deal with the doctrine of original sin and the fact that Christ's imputation of righteousness is how we are saved. Now, we have begun to barely scratch the surface, but I want you to see that even now we start to see the hints of the gospel, the, the threads of the gospel are beginning to be woven into the, the preaching of the gospel in this, chat, in this book. We will be uh, continuing this next time we get a chance. But uh, before I close it down, as we get to this point, I'm going to make a mark here on my notes. Are there any questions that you have um, about what we've covered so far? Anything? We'll have opportunities for questions throughout. I want this to be as, as some engaging. Yes, sir, Ron. So it is primarily Jews who bring the So there are Jews and Gentiles in Rome. Um, we have a Jewish, probably a Jewish group. The Jews had spread throughout um, the known world. 
so there are Jews here, so they would know what Son of David's all about. But you also have, he's, there's an established church in Rome already. We have an established church with Jews who are converted Christians who are teaching and winning Gentiles uh, to the faith. And he's going to deal with Gentiles first. And in Romans chapter 1, he deals with sin and the fact that Gentiles need a Savior because they're sin. So he deals with Gentiles, then he deals with Jews. And so there's obviously a Jewish group here, but it's not fully Jews. It's not all Jews. It's a mix. It's a mixed group. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every, every group, every um, uh, synagogue or group would have their own uh, Torah scrolls. I think normally they would. I, I don't want to say maybe everyone, but most would have uh, their own Torah scrolls, or at least uh, they would be able to have access to the Word, um, and they would be very familiar with, with the Old Testament. Now, the Gentiles, not so much. No, very unlikely that Paul was traveling with his own Torah scrolls. No. So as Paul references things, he is... Um, quoting things he's memorized. Uh, remember, to, to access a Torah scroll, you're talking gigantic, I mean, massive, massive thing. These, you know, they don't have thin paper like we have today. You're talking animal skins that were scraped and then written on, um, very much uh, carefully kept after, very expensive. So he would not have had access to those kinds of things. He was writing probably on parchment, on papyri. Uh, we found papyri. I say we, I haven't. Uh, scholars have found papyri. Uh, that dates to the second century A.D. that has biblical writing on it, so um, they know basically what it looked like when they wrote on it. Yeah, and uh, so scraps, you know, this size, like about the size of your Bible. Yeah. Good question. Any other questions? It's a great question. Okay. Audience mixed, Jews and Greeks. He's going to deal with them. Basically, he's expounding the gospel message, what the gospel message is all about, the need for it the answer to our sin, et cetera, and how we live it out. 